Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, hello, everybody. I hope you are all doing well. I've had a pretty good week myself, so I am here ready to have a wonderful conversation about some amazing Native women throughout history. So I had three women that I wanted to focus on primarily throughout this episode. But as it happens sometimes in the world of podcasting, you know, researching and all of that, sometimes not all of your sources are completely upfront with a lot of the beliefs, the full beliefs of these people. So I had done a lot of research on a woman by the name of Marie Bottineau Baldwin. And it wasn't until I started branching out into... Uh, you know, some non-official websites, more like blogs written about her or educational essays and things like that, that it came to my attention that she was very exclusionary of African Americans being involved in a lot of the organizations that she worked in. She was very outwardly racist in that, you know, believing that, you know, the Native population is higher on this hierarchy of races in the world than African Americans. And I went back and forth between thinking about whether I should still talk about Marie's accomplishments a little bit, because she really is somebody that when you Google, you know, historical Native American women, she comes up fairly often. And I was just a little bit disappointed about the ending <laughs> of all of that. And she really did do some amazing things and worked in our government um, with like presidents and things like that to be able to help with resources and stuff for Native American people. But I don't believe in giving negative people a platform, not on this show. I don't want to be... It would feel weird to tell her story now because I feel like with that context, it just feels very different to me. So this might end up being a shorter episode than I initially intended, but I think that that's worth it rather than me discussing somebody that I don't want to really give a platform to. So the first person that I wanted to talk about popped up all over the place when I was Googling, and this woman is Buffalo Calf Road Woman. Buffalo Calf Roadwoman was a Northern Cheyenne woman, most likely born between 1844 and 1850, and she's most known for saving her wounded brother, Chief Comes in Sight, in the Battle of the Rosebud, but the natives would then rename it the Battle of the Girl Who Saved Her Brother after Buffalo Calf Roadwoman's heroism. So let's talk a little bit about that. The Battle of Rosebud took place on June 17th, 1876 in the Montana Territory, and it was fought between the U.S. Army and the Native Americans in Montana. The Lakota Sioux and Northern Cheyenne Indians had become allies under the leadership of Crazy Horse, and together they fought against the United States Army. The U.S. Army approached Rosebud Creek on June 17, 1876. General Crook and his band of soldiers had marched northwards and were tired from their previous 35-mile march. 
At around 8 a.m., Crook stopped and let his men and animals rest. He decided to stop in an area that wasn't very well protected, and they didn't know that the Crow and Shoshone natives were watching as they rested. So they attacked, taking advantage of their vulnerable state, storming them shouting, Lakota, Lakota, allegedly. However, the natives were outnumbered by U.S. troops and they had to retreat. The Shoshone fell back toward the camp, but this didn't stop the Americans. They tried to keep going. So a six-hour battle ensued between General Crook and Crazy Horse and all of the other soldiers and natives that were in the area. During the retreat, Chief Comes in Sight was wounded on the battlefield. Suddenly, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman rode out onto the battlefield and grabbed her brother, bringing him to safety. This act of bravery then rallied the Cheyenne, and that's how they allegedly defeated Crook and his forces. Which I love, because it's like this woman came in, saved her brother, and this was like, yeah, we can do it, we can save the day, and everybody did really well after that, you know? It's like on a sports team, I would assume, where like when one person does really well, it gives you the motivation to do better too, you know? She is also documented as having fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn, or Custer's Last Stand, as many of us learned it to be, where she fought alongside her husband named Black Coyote. The Battle of Little Bighorn was fought between Custer and the Lakota Sioux, Arapaho, and Northern Cheyenne warriors, led by Sitting Bull, Chief Gall, and Crazy Horse. There was a 100-year silence from the Northern Cheyenne about what really happened during the battle, but in June 2005, tribal leaders came forth to tell their story. In their telling, it was Buffalo Calf Roadwoman who had struck the blow that knocked Custer off his horse, leading him to die on the battlefield. She used a club-like object to knock him off, though she was allegedly an incredible markswoman. She was just one of several women who fought against Custer in this battle, including Pretty Nose, an Arapaho woman who fought and survived, living to be 101 years old. The one who walks with the stars rounded up stray horses and killed two soldiers who were fleeing from the battlefield. And Minnie Hollow Wood was so courageous in the battle that she was the first woman to receive a war bonnet. After these accomplishments, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman, her husband, their two children, and most of the rest of their tribe left their reservation as they were forced to move to Oklahoma on a new Indian territory. There they faced starvation and an outbreak of the measles, and they were miserable. Because of the terrible conditions, the Cheyenne decided to try to make their way back to Montana and reclaim their home. This was known as the Northern Cheyenne Exodus, and it occurred in September of 1878. They were led by Little Wolf's Band of Northern Cheyenne. Along the way, Black Coyote, who had begun to display some troubling behavior, shot and killed a Cheyenne chief named Black Crane. Buffalo Calf Roadwoman and her family of eight were then banished from Little Wolf's Band of Cheyennes. Shortly after that, Black Coyote and another man attacked two U.S. soldiers, killing one of them. This led to a manhunt after them, and soldiers came and tracked down the family, capturing them on April 10, 1879. This event became known as the Mizpah Creek Incidents. They were then taken to Miles City, Montana, where the three men, including Black Coyote, were tried for murder. They were found guilty and were scheduled to be executed on June 8, 1879. Unfortunately, while Black Coyote was in prison, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman fell ill and passed away. Her husband was told that she was killed by the, quote, white man's coughing disease. 
He was so devastated when he learned of her passing that he took his own life in prison. And, you know, from this story, it sounds like if we were to be reading about Black Coyote in a 2022 lens, it sounds like maybe there was some mental health stuff going on. And it seems like, you know, I'm assuming the person that she first met drastically changed you know, a little bit further into their marriage because he really does seem to be displaying some really unhinged behavior. And it was hard for me to find anything about him in particular because there was another black coyote who was more celebrated. So I couldn't really get into much more of his history. And there really isn't a whole lot known about Buffalo Calf Road Woman as a whole. But I just really love her story because I think that, you know, this took place so, so long ago. And it's easy for us to forget the accomplishments of these women from so long ago, especially when they weren't taught in schools and things like that. I mean, the true story didn't really come out until 2005 when they were able to, you know, tell the story that had been passed down for 100 years, you know, from person to person since Custer's Last Stand or the Battle of Little Bighorn. So that's why I think this is really important because I think it ties together a big chunk of that story that none of us learned. And I also think that it's an amazing story to hear about this woman always coming to the rescue of the men in her life. You know, she's probably just like so sick of everybody messing around all the time. She's like, I got to get you boys together. You know, I'm going to save you on the battlefield. I'm going to try not to get you killed to her husband, things like that. I really wish there were more accounts of what she was like as a person and other accomplishments that she had in her life, you know, about her children, things like that. And maybe there is more information out there that's a little bit more difficult for me to come by, but I still really, really wanted to share her story. Now, this is about the time where I would have been sharing Marie's story, but I am going to skip it. I know that first one was really, really short, but this one is a little bit longer and incredibly fascinating. I am going to be telling you about Lida Conley. Eliza, who went by Lida, was born in either 1868 or 1869 to Elizabeth Zane and Andrew Conley. Elizabeth, her mother, was mixed race and her father was Isaac Zane, who has an absolutely fascinating history himself. Isaac was kidnapped when he was a kid by Wyandotte natives when he was living in Virginia. They took him back to their tribe in Oklahoma, and he was then adopted into the tribe, and he lived with them for the next 17 years. Then he married the chief's daughter, White Crane. I mean, hello, plot twist, right? And the couple migrated with the tribe to Ohio, where they founded Zanesfield. Unfortunately, the family was forced out of the town in 1843 by the U.S. government. Lida's dad, Andrew Conley, was a, quote, Yankee, according to Wikipedia, and was of Scots-Irish and English descent. Elizabeth and Andrew married in 1860 in Logan County, Ohio, and had four daughters total. There was Sarah, a.k.a. Sally, who was born in 1863, who unfortunately died at the young age of 17. Ida was born in 1865. Helena was born in 1867. And Lida was the baby of the family. The girls were raised on a 64-acre farm in present-day Wyandotte County. 
From what I read, the property, quote, collapsed years later, forcing the adult Conley girls to move to Kansas City. I don't really know what collapsed means. I don't know if that means literally, if that means economically. But either way, the girls had to go out on their own and begin their own lives. And when they got to Kansas, the girls all got this house together and they all decided to either get educated or get involved in their communities in some way. Sally was really active in civic duty in the area. Helena studied at Park College in Missouri, and Lida decided to go to the Kansas City School of Law, from which she graduated in 1902. She then became the first woman to be admitted to the Kansas City Bar. Once she became a lawyer, she began working to defend Native American rights and best interests. Before we talk about her specific cause, we need to talk a little bit about the history of Wyandotte Natives and the Huron Cemetery. In 1855, some of the Wyandots accepted the government's offer of U.S. citizenship as they were, quote, judged ready to join majority society. Gross. Those who didn't agree with this migrated from Kansas to Oklahoma in 1867 as part of the government's 19th century removals, which you may also know as the Trail of Tears. When they got to Oklahoma, they rebuilt some tribal structure and retained legal authority over the tribal communal burial ground at Huron Cemetery in Kansas. However, in 1906, the U.S. Secretary of Interior was authorized to put the cemetery up for sale in order to use the land. Apparently, this was like prime to expand Kansas in a way that they really, really wanted to. In doing so, the remains within the cemetery would then be transported to another cemetery nearby in Kansas City. Obviously, this absolutely enraged Lida, whose mother, sister, Sally, maternal grandparents, and other ancestors were all buried in this cemetery. And you know what? It would piss me off even if I didn't have people that I lived there. I, there's something about exhuming the dead and moving them unless there is like a very specific reason that grosses me out, that I don't like, that I think, you know, just leave them alone. You know what I mean? There's I feel like there's also this horrible trope of like the Indian burial ground and all of this bullshit. It's like no, these people were just fucking resting there and then white people came in and completely took over and instead of honoring their lives and their deaths, they just bulldozed the whole thing and built things on top of it and then this crazy myth came out of it that there's something scary and I just think it's such a terrible stereotype and it makes me so angry and I just I feel like all of this really ties into that in a lot of ways but mostly my point was that the exhumation of bodies and things like that is disturbing for any family members but from what I've learned about a lot of different Native American tribes, their burials are very important and the way that they're dead are honored is very important and the way that the lives of the people that have passed away are honored means a lot in their culture so this was absolutely devastating to them but luckily Lida's a lawyer so she and her sisters went to the cemetery and they literally built a structure surrounding it so they could live there and keep watch around the clock Imagine a band of middle-aged women coming to a cemetery, building a structure, and deciding to live there. And not only did they just keep watch, they were armed with muskets. Muskets! And they were very vocal about their intentions to shoot anyone who trespasses on the grounds. They also put up no trespassing signs, which I feel like is really nice, but if you've built a large structure and you're packing, people will get the point. 
The sisters caused such a racket in the community that the papers began writing about them. In one Kansas City paper on October 25th, 1906, Lida is quoted saying, In this cemetery are buried 100 of our ancestors. Why should we not be proud of our ancestors and protect their graves? We shall do it, and woe be the man that first attempts to steal a body. We are part owners of the ground and have the right under the law to keep out trespassers. The right man has to shoot a burglar who enters his home. And I love that she speaks with such authority because she's like, I'm a fucking lawyer. I know what I'm talking about. And this is how it's going to be. Before I finish with her story, I do need to find time for a quick commercial break. So let's squeeze one in right now. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back. So, although people were probably terrified of the physical threats that these women were showing against, you know, trespassing this cemetery, they also had legal powers behind them, which made them even more terrifying. And I don't think people expected these women to be as powerful as they would turn out to be. In 1907, she and her sisters filed a petition in the U.S. Circuit Court for the District of Kansas for an injunction against the government's authorization of sale. The courts, unfortunately, ruled against the sisters. It wasn't going to be that easy. I told you the story is not that short. So Lida filed appeal after appeal, making its way eventually to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I don't really understand how the bar works and how you have to be accepted to different bars and things like that in order to defend your case. But apparently Lida hadn't been admitted to the Supreme Court bar, so she appeared in court acting in proprietary persona, meaning in her own person, which means that she would represent herself in court in absence of a lawyer, but she is a lawyer. So it seems weird. 
If you're confused by it, it's fine. Technically, she was still a lawyer defending her case against the U.S. Supreme Court. And in defending this case, she became the first Native American lawyer admitted before the U.S. Supreme Court. But even with these amazing accomplishments, Justice Wendell Holmes ruled in favor of the lower courts, agreeing that they were acting legally in regards to land sale. But the silver lining to all of this was that because it reached the U.S. Supreme Court, this case had gained national attention. By 1913, Congress repealed the bill authorizing the sale of the cemetery, but the Secretary of Interior still wasn't willing to give up, so legal battles continued. But the initial battle in the Supreme Court would continue to show more and more bills and laws that were trying to be passed for the next years and years, literally, because of what these sisters, and in particular Lida, was able to do. Lida continued to take her post at the cemetery, and some of her vigilante shit landed her in the papers. Once, she even shot a cop who trespassed. Of course, she was arrested. When she wasn't being a total badass, she also tended to the animals on the land, bringing fresh water and nuts to the squirrels and birds. In 1916, Senator Charles Curtis introduced a bill in Congress that precluded the sale of the cemetery and designated it a federal park. In 1918, the federal government agreed to keep the land, quote, improved by entering into a contract with Kansas City to, quote, forever maintain, protect, and provide lighting and police protection to the cemetery. But all of this still didn't satisfy Lida, as they still technically weren't getting what they wanted. So she continued to guard the land. She was up to no good again in 1937 when she chased a group of people off the land. She was then arrested again and charged with, quote, disturbance. When she was taken to court, she was offered to pay a $10 fine or spend 10 days in jail. In an act of protest, she chose to spend the 10 days in jail. I love a petty woman. The last article written about her until her death notice was from June 16, 1937, with the headline reading, Miss Lida Conley Leaves Jail. Lida passed away on May 28, 1946, and was buried in Huron Cemetery next to her family. And now when I got to this part of the story, I was like, okay, it seems like she, you know, just reached the end of her life and quietly passed away. She's done a lot. This is the end of the story, right? Well, turns out there's possibly a whole other rabbit hole to go down when it comes to her death, because after she passed away, her good friend came forward with a very disturbing story, which could be the reason that she died. Her friend Wilma Coleman stated that the night before Lida passed away, a stranger jumped out and attacked her, hitting her in the head with a brick and stealing her purse. The saddest thing is, is that her purse allegedly only contained 20 cents. Lida died within 24 hours of this alleged attack. In 1971, Huron Cemetery was added to the list in the National Register of Historic Places. It was seen as desirable again in the 90s when a bunch of people wanted to build a casino on the land, but thankfully it was protected due to the Native American Graves Protection and Reparation Act, which was enacted in November 1990. Then finally, in 1998, the Kansas and Oklahoma Wyandotte came to an agreement to protect and preserve the cemetery for religious and cultural reasons, as well as keeping its sacred use. It was named as a historic landmark in December of 2016. 
And when I was reading this story and learning more and more about Lida, it reminded me of another story I heard recently on the podcast Crime Story from Gimlet. If you haven't listened to this podcast, it's really, really well done. And it's not just like super scary crime. It's a lot of different types of crime. And this was one of the stories that they told in a recent episode. Grave robbing and stealing of artifacts from Native American graves was incredibly common and detrimental to Native American tribes throughout history. It dates back to the colonization of the Western Hemisphere. Many of the items that were stolen stayed in the family or they were placed in museums around the world, but not with their rightful owners. The pillaging of these artifacts also gave credence to the myth of the, quote, disappearing Indian, meaning that they were a people of the past and not modern day people who still had a very rich culture and still cared about their ancestors. It's not like all of this stuff happened that long ago. Even when there's so many people who can be like Max and say, I found out that I was related to Ulysses X. Grant. It wouldn't be difficult for Native people to be able to easily tie themselves to the people that I was talking about in this episode. Rich, entitled white people, like the man I'm about to discuss, will go on missions to find artifacts in order to protect a, quote, extinct race that wasn't fucking extinct. In 2014, the FBI had gotten a tip and raided the home of Donald Miller, an amateur archaeologist who liked to think of himself as a sort of Indiana Jones character, whose home he had turned into a sort of museum with all of the artifacts that he had found from all over the world. I guess found isn't necessarily the best word. Many of the items that he had were not supposed to be there and very illegal to have. The FBI took an initial look around the home and found 42,000 pieces that needed to be carefully removed. So they set all of that up. They prepared for the removal of just objects and things like that. They got their vans and their tarps and all of that stuff. The FBI came and they were prepared to do it as, you know neatly and kindly as possible, but there were a few doors that hadn't been opened during the initial look around the house, and they were like, okay, Don, you're going to have to open these doors for us now. We have to see what else is going on. This was now like the official raid where before they were just kind of doing like a walkthrough of the house. So Donald, this 90-year-old man, opened the doors and walked away and let the FBI agents go inside and check it out. The FBI could not believe what they found when they saw over 2,000 human bones stolen from native graves. The FBI expected that those bones belonged to about 500 different people. And I'm not going to go into detail about how they found these things, what they found, what had been done to these remains. So I highly recommend listening to the crime show episode titled Behind the Locked Door, which was uploaded on April 12th, 2022. It is incredibly well done. It is a little bit graphic, so listen with care. But if you're interested in learning more about the specifics of that part, I'm just going to direct you there. Llewellyn White, a professor and Mohawk citizen, connects the grave robbing to the historical genocide of Native Americans. She says, quote, the theft of land comes with theft of our bodies and continual dehumanization of indigenous peoples. I think it really ties into the perceptions of indigenous people as less than human. Don Miller passed away in 2015, but the FBI has spent years returning both artifacts and bones to their proper owners, working with Native American groups to help them properly transport the bodies as they discovered their true homes.
It truly is such a sad and disturbing story. And it really, I think, starts an important conversation about the treatment of Native Americans in our country, especially still to this day, how there is so much racism against them and how a lot of their culture has been so unbelievably appropriated and mishandled and misused and abused in so many different ways by white Americans. And, you know, I didn't really say this at the top and I was thinking of maybe editing and editing it in and putting it in at the front, but I'll just mention this now. I wanted to talk about Native American stories this month because November is Native American Heritage Month. And, you know, last year, I believe it was when Keegan and I did our, you know, story of the real Thanksgiving and things like that. And I really believe it's important as a white person who grew up with a certain type of education for me to go out of my way to learn about the other side of history and to learn more about Native American culture, especially when I do appreciate it so much. I would never want to approach appropriate it in any sort of way. And so I believe that the more educated I can be, the better I can be. And again, I really wish that I could have talked about Marie uh, Botanou Baldwin a little bit only because she did do a lot in, you know, helping to sway or trying to help sway the stereotypes of Native American women, especially in, you know, higher levels of government and things like that. She worked with the Society of American Indians, which she helped found in 1911, which aimed to educate white Americans on what Native Americans were truly like and not the stereotypes that they had been led to believe. They believed by creating a self-sufficient working committee without the help of white Americans, it would prove their abilities instead of the idea of needing help from Westerners. And Marie is also very famous because the photo that she took for her Office of Indian Affairs um, personnel file, instead of assimilating and wearing, you know, white people clothes, which there are many photos of her, like professional photos done where she looks more like a Victorian type white woman rather than, you know, a Native American woman in traditional dress. But the photo of her that is in her like fish official government file she is wearing traditional dress and her hair in braids and it was truly a sign of protest because the office of indian affairs was really racist and she was hoping that by being in there she could help make it better and things like that and again i don't want to get into her too much because i don't want to give her a platform but i think that a lot of the things that she did were really important especially when we're talking about the stereotypes that have been held about native americans throughout history i can think of so many you know disney movies dr seuss books other things like that that i read growing up i mean the football teams <laughs> you know there's always been so much heavy racism against these different um these different Native American communities, and the better educated we can be, the better we can make the future of these tribes and these people and their culture that truly does deserve to continue to thrive in any way that they see fit. So that is the end of this episode. When I'm done recording, I'm only at 36 minutes and I had to take a couple little breathers in there. So this is going to be really, really short. And I really, really, really apologize. And it would have been probably another 15 minutes longer if I had decided to talk about Marie. But again, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. So I hope you're okay with this being a shorter full length episode. And I hope that you really enjoyed the stories that I did talk about. 
there are so many other amazing Native American women that I read about in the research of these two people that I discussed today. So I have a great list of potential feminist faves for the future, and I'm really, really excited about it. Um, Also, in my research, I was doing a lot of reading about the boarding schools that were forced by the U.S. government and the Canadian government. So I just wanted to let you all know that I was thinking about discussing those boarding schools next week. So if there's anything in particular that you wanted me to talk about in regards to that topic, please go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you also want to follow my personal page, that's cool. It's at She's Madigan. Simple as that. The show has a Facebook business and group page. I'm still locked out of my Facebook, and every time I record, I remind myself to try to figure out how the fuck to get back into it. Um, so if you want to leave a review at the business page or chat with the group members, uh, please go ahead and do so. If you are waiting to be accepted into one of those groups, hang tight. I promise I'll get to you eventually. You're not being, uh, you're not being intentionally ignored or anything like that. Last but certainly not least, it's been a while since I've had a review, and I'm sure many of you are listening thinking, Madigan, I've been listening forever. I reviewed years ago, or I reviewed months ago, weeks ago, whatever. But if there are a few of you out there who aren't thinking that and are like, oh, God, I got to remember to do that, please, please, please go over to your Apple Podcast app if you have an iPhone and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. The little comments that you make really, really help because it gives people reasons to start listening to the show if they're on the fence and then if you also want to rate on Spotify you can do that as well all right thank you so much everybody I appreciate you all for coming along on this journey with me this week and every week this is all I have for you today with all that being said I encourage you to rage on bye Imagine, it's a chill night on a desert plain. You're huddled near a bonfire for warmth. Above you looms an endless starry sky, and all around you lies a sea of land. In this void, over the crackles of the flame, we ask, could we interest you in a spot of fireside storytelling? Introducing Temujin, a Webby-nominated adaptation of Central Asian folklore, performed by an all-Asian cast, perfect for fans of The Prince of Egypt or Amadeus. The show is an intimate epic that charts the rise of Genghis Khan as told from the perspective of his childhood friend turned mortal enemy. All five episodes of Temujin are out now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or learn more at realm.fm.